Hello, my name is Stephen Dunn, and you're listening to the Hellenistic Christendom Podcast, Philosophy for Understanding Theology. Hello and welcome back. Today I'd like to talk about some arguments for the existence of God, which specifically to ask a question, why should one make an argument for the existence of God? Why, moreover, provide 15 of them? Is it that the evidence for God is so weak that believers need multiple arguments working together in their persuasive power to change the minds of unbelievers? Now, questions of whether or not these arguments are useful or if they can actually coerce religious belief has been an area of interesting debate between philosophers for some time now. Now, in the philosopher Alvin Plantinga's essay, Two Dozen or So Theistic Arguments, which he wrote in 1986, he first asked this question, what are these arguments like and what role do they play? Plantinga, Plantinga answers this question by saying that these arguments are probabilistic, either with respect to the premises, the connection of the premises with the conclusion, or both. Furthermore, he says, quote, they can serve to bolster and confirm, perhaps to convince. Of course, Plantica is careful with what it means for these arguments to be coercive. As he writes, these arguments are not coercive in the sense that every person is obliged to accept their premises on the pain of irrationality. Maybe just that some or many sensible people do accept their premises for oneself. And so, the discussion could go on and on. However, I present 15 arguments here for the existence of God so that I might establish a strong cumulative case for his existence. This is because some arguments are more so about strong probability, such as the argument from religious experience, argument from miracles, and etc., while others can have a demonstrative element to them, such as Aquinas' third way. Now, the combination of these given characteristics can, in my opinion, be very effective in a case for theism, particularly that of Christian theism. And these arguments are as follows. The first, the, cos- the Kalam cosmological argument. This argument draws from several lines of evidences, mathematics, science, philosophy, that try to connect the premises with its conclusion, namely that the universe has a cause of its existence. And the argument can be, can be summarized like this. The universe cannot have existed forever in the past. In other words, the universe cannot be past eternal. Why not? We have reached the present moment. If the universe were past eternal, we would never reach the present moment. An infinite amount of moments would have to be realized before we could reach the present moment, which is absurd. Therefore, the universe must be finite. If the universe is finite, it began to exist, then the universe requires a cause, totally separate from it, to bring it into existence. This cause must transcend space and time because it created space and time, and therefore must be timeless and immaterial. But we ask, what sorts of things that are immaterial and timeless cause things to exist? Well, we only have two options, abstract objects or a transcendent mind. I would say mind, but in this, in, in this instance, we're going to be referring to a transcendent mind. So by one, I simply mean something like a number, but of course, abstract objects can't cause anything to exist. The number seven, for example, has no causal power. Therefore, this cause must be a mind, which is what believers understand to be God. And that's a rough sketch of the Kalam cosmological argument. Moving forward to the second argument, the Leibnizian cosmological argument. Whatever has an explanation of its existence, 
or excuse me, whatever exists has an explanation of its existence, otherwise known as the principle of sufficient reason. Now, in other words, nothing exists without a reason accounting for that thing's existence. However, there are two kinds of existence that we have to be clear about. The first is necessary existence, and the second is contingent existence. If something necessarily exists, then the explanation of its existence is within itself, not outside of itself. Now, philosophers have argued that numbers, properties, and even the laws of logic are all necessarily existent things, in the sense that none of these came into existence by some other thing, but rather that they exist by the necessity of their own nature. However, if something is contingently existent, then the reason for its existence is external to it. Um, you and I are contingent, so is the phone or the computer that you're using to listen to this podcast and etc. Now, the shortcut understanding is this. Contingent things have the possibility of existing or not existing. Necessary things either must or must not exist. So with that understood, the argument is as follows. Everything that exists has an explanation of its existence. If the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. The universe exists, therefore the universe has an explanation of its existence. Therefore the explanation of the existence of the universe is God. Now given our terms above, let's restate the first premise. Everything that exists has an explanation of its existence either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. Why doesn't God have an explanation of his existence, if he exists, or who created God? God is a necessarily existent being. He requires no external cause to bring about his existence. God just is, and he cannot not be. Moving on, the ontological argument, which is an argument drawing from our idea of God. First, suppose that we were to define God as the greatest conceivable being. Now, let's assume that the greatest conceivable being only exists in your mind, but not in reality. However, isn't it true that existence in reality is greater than existence just in your mind? A mere idea of $100 in your pocket is far more lacking in being than a real $100 in your pocket. Thus, we have the assumption greatest conceivable being only exists in your mind, but existence in reality is greater than existence in the mind. Therefore, the greatest conceivable being must exist in reality as well as in your mind, or else it wouldn't be the greatest conceivable being. Therefore, the very idea of God suggests that he exists. Now we move to the argument from the origin of the idea of God. And now, this argument has a close friendship with the ontological argument just mentioned. But rather than suggesting that real being is associated with the content of the idea of God, another philosopher, particularly Descartes, is saying that God is such an idea that he must be the cause or the origin of this idea. And the argument runs something like this. We have ideas of many things. We have ideas of things that are real, the earth, the sky, etc. But we also have ideas of things that appear to be innate. As Descartes writes, quote, among these ideas, some appear to me to be innate, some adventitious, and some produced by me. For I understand what a thing is, what truth is, what thought is, and I appear to have derived this exclusively, exclusively from my very own nature. So Descartes thence goes on to have a very tedious discussion about these ideas, but what is important to notice is the next step in his argument. Quote, all that remains for me is to ask how I received this idea of God. For I did not draw it from the senses. It never came 
it never came upon me unexpectedly, as is usually the case with ideas of sensible things when these things present themselves to the external organs. So Descartes contends that God is the source of the idea he has of God. So to finish then, he says, the mere fact that God created me makes it highly plausible that I have somehow been made in his image and likeness, and that I perceive his likeness in which the idea of God is contained by means of the same faculty by which I perceive myself. Moving on to the argument from design. We notice that certain things according to our experience have been designed or display a mark of intelligibility. For instance, the house requires a builder, the watch requires a watchmaker, and so on. However, what about the universe? We notice that houses and even watches have properties such as the adjustments of parts into holes and other properties like curious adapting of means to ends. So it is the case that the universe has these properties as well. And if the universe does have these properties, we can say that it is probable that the universe was produced by design. So we can put the argument like this. The universe displays design within the created order. Now, either this intelligible order is the product of chance or of intelligent design. It is not the product of chance. Therefore, the universe is the product of intelligent design. Now, design only comes from a mind, a designer. Therefore, the universe is a product, or is the product, excuse me, of an intelligent designer. Moving on to the moral argument, and we're on argument six now, by the way, in case you're counting. There are various types of moral arguments, but one notable form is a sort of argument regarding objective moral facts, and it runs something like this. For every moral action, there must be a general overall reason that motivates the given action. In other words, there are instrumental reasons. I will this because X, Y, and Z. Um, these instrumental reasons that we give in order to carry out an overall good or a basic or irreducible good. Now, the foundations of the moral life, as Aquinas called it, are things such as life, beauty, friendship, honesty, justice, truth, and so on. Now, how do we account for these things and why are we accountable to uphold them? There are various questions that we can ask with respect to responsibility, moral obligation, ability, and so forth. But now, just suppose the following. If morality is objective and absolute, then God exists. Morality is objective and absolute, therefore God exists. The argument is saying that the objectivity of the moral law presumes that God exists. In other words, given that certain things are objectively wrong, such as murder and etc., or that they can be held to an objective slash absolute standard of right and wrong, they presuppose the existence of God. That is to say, an authority by which these moral precepts can be established. Next, the argument from miracles. So, contrary to David Hume's definition, which his definition of a miracle was a violation of a law of nature, we can better define miracles as a specific event that would not have happened if only the natural order had been operating. Thus, our argument may run as follows. A miracle is an event whose only adequate explanation is the extraordinary and direct intervention of God. There are numerous well-attested miracles that we know of. Therefore, there are numerous events whose only adequate explanation is the extraordinary and direct intervention of God. Therefore, God exists. 
So if some extraordinary event is a miracle, then it is due to divine agency. And such agency was at work in this event. However, as the philosopher Peter Kreeft rightly asked, was this event a miracle? If miracles exist, then God must exist. But do miracles exist? Of course, there are many happenings that count as extraordinary. And so counting those extraordinary events as miracles and thus the intervention of divine agency is a bit of a leaf, uh, leap. However, Kreeft rightly recognizes several conditions for being inclined to considering an event um, as a miracle. One of these is that the personal setting of the event um, is relevant for an individual. That is to say that there is a, a personalistic sense of the event, not an impersonal or impartial one. Next, there is a religious context to the event. And also, there is the character and message of the person tied to the event. So, the first criterion, the, pers the personal setting of the event for an individual, and the third criterion, the character and message of the person tied to the event, are closely tied to one another, since, even with respect to Jesus Christ, miracles do often, though not always, involve some given moral authority as well as religious authority, which is acknowledged at the occurrence of a miracle. So, to finish from Kraft, he says, quote, There is not really a proof from miracles. If you see some event as a miracle, then the activity of God as, uh, or the activity of God is seen in this event. There is a movement of the mind from this event to its proper interpretation as miraculous. Moving on to the eighth argument, the argument from reason. C.S. Lewis, in chapter 3 of his book, um, on miracles argues that, quote, all possible knowledge depends on the validity of reasoning. We trust that our faculties of reasoning are reliable. Lewis believes that we have good reasons for thinking this. He says, quote, it follows that no account of the universe can be true unless that account leaves it possible for our thinking to be a real insight, a theory which explained everything else in the whole universe, but which made it impossible to believe that our thinking was valid, would be utterly out of court. C.S. Lewis, against the idea uh, excuse me, arguing against the idea that the entire physical universe, the total system, he calls it, is all there is, what he calls naturalism, by this view. However, given that we believe our faculties are reliable, why can't they be reliable under naturalism? So Lewis, quoting GBS, JBS Haldane, Haldane, writes, I can't speak today, if my mental processes are determined wholly by the motions of atoms in my brain, I have no reason to, to suppose that my beliefs are true, and hence I have no reason for supposing my brain to be comprised of atoms. As Alvin Plantinga argues, we need a reliable source of reason in order to interpret the world. We consider this reliable source of reason to be God. So to finish our argument, consider this schematization. 1. Either at least some of the fundamental causes of the universe are more like a mind than anything else, or they are not. 2. If they are not, then it is either impossible or extremely improbable that reason could emerge. 3. All things being equal, worldviews that render it impossible or extremely improbable that reason should emerge should be rejected in favor of worldviews according to which it is not impossible and not improbable that reason should emerge. 4. Therefore, we have good reason to reject all worldviews that reject the claim that the fundamental causes of the universe are more like a mind than anything else. Moving on, the ninth argument, the argument from beauty or aesthetic experience. To use Alvin Plantinga's more complex 
explanation. He says, quote, On a naturalistic anthropology, our alleged grasp of beauty and appreciation of alleged beauty is to be explained in terms of evolution, but miserable and disgusting cacophony, heavy metal rock, could as well have been what we took to be beautiful. On the theistic view, God recognizes beauty. Indeed, it is deeply involved in his very nature. To grasp the beauty of Mozart's D minor piano concerto is to grasp something that is objectively there. It is to appreciate what is objectively worthy of appreciation. However, even stated more succinctly, as I think best by Peter Kraft, you either see this one or you don't. <laughs> now, the argument from religious experience. Exclusive to your own religious faith may be some sort of experience that points you to a divine reality, at least in the sense that this divine reality is what best explains your religious experience. And now, this argument could be put as follows. Many people of different eras and of widely different cultures claim to have had an experience of the divine. It is inconceivable that so many people could have been so utterly wrong about the nature and content of their own experience. Therefore, there exists a divine reality that many people of different eras and of widely different cultures have experienced. The philosopher Richard Swinburne has argued that, quote, an apparent experience, apparent in the epistemic sense, is a real experience, and apparent perception is genuine, which is to say, if it is caused by that of which it purports to be an experience. So my apparent perception of the desk is a real perception if the desk causes light rays to land on my eyes and thereby causes me to have the apparent perception. Furthermore, Swinburne recognizes, despite whether or not these experiences are authentic, that millions and millions of people have once or twice in their lives been aware of God and his guidance. However, he thence furthers what's known as the principle of credulity, which says that we ought to believe that things are as they seem to be in the epistemic sense, unless and until we have evidence that we are mistaken. So then there are three kinds of evidences. First, having evidence where our apparent perceptions under certain conditions were actually not reliable. Two, we may have evidence in particular cases that things are not as they seem. Three, there may be evidence that the apparent experience was not caused by the object purportedly experienced. So to finish with Swinburne then, Quote, in the case of religious experiences, as in the case of all other experiences, the onus is on the skeptic to give reason for not believing what seems to be the case. The only way to defeat the claims of religious experience will be to show that the strong balance of evidence is that there is no God. In the evidence of, or in the absence, excuse me, of that strong balance, religious experience provides significant further evidence that there is a God. Furthermore, the argument from common consent. The argument kind of runs something like this. Common to almost all people of every era is belief in God. Either this vast majority of people have been wrong about this ex existentially profound element in their lives, or they haven't. It is more plausible to suppose that they weren't wrong. Therefore, it is more plausible to believe that God exists. This argument, in a lot of ways, is not a case for theism, but does give one considerable reasons for seeing theism as a credible and serious option. However, shouldn't we be mindful of the fact that just because the vast majority says X is true, that doesn't actually make X true? This is to take note that people are not infallible, and so have the possibility of being wrong about some things um, very little and some things very big. However, as the philosopher Peter Kreeft notes, quote, Believing in God is like having a relationship with a person. If God never existed, neither did this relationship. You were responding with reverence and love to no one, and no one was there to receive and answer your response. It's as if you believe yourself happily married, in fact, 
when in fact you live alone in a dingy apartment. Now, we grant that such mass delusion is conceivable, but what is the likely story? It is more reasonable to believe that God really is there, given such widespread belief in him. Unless atheists can come up with a very persuasive explanation for religious belief, one that takes full account of the experience of believers and shows that their experience is best explained as delusion and not insight. Moving forward, Pascal's wager. And we have two arguments to go, so bear with me. The French philosopher Blaise Pascal once wrote in his Pensees, the French word for thoughts, that, quote, either God is or he is not. But to which view shall we be inclined? Reason cannot decide this question. Infinite chaos separates us. At the far end of this infinite distance, a coin is being spun that will come down heads or tails. How will you wager? The particular reason as to why Pascal says reason cannot decide this question is because the argument is initially intended for skeptics. Thus, at this infinite distance, that is death, a coin is being spun, heads being God or tails, no God. Now, suppose that none of the prior arguments have convinced you that I've given a, you know, in this episode, that they are inconclusive, if you will. Pascal believes that there still may be an argument left for those who believe that none of these logical demonstrations work to reach their conclusion. This is known as Pascal's wager. So, if we can't obtain a proof for God's existence, that is, reason can't decide the issue, where are you going to place your bet? If you place your bet with God, you don't lose anything and you gain infinite happiness. Even if God doesn't exist and you place your bets with him, you still lose nothing. But if you place your bet against God, you will lose everything. God, eternity, infinite gain, and etc. So the wager kind of gives us more of a motive to place our bet. And Pascal says, quote, If there is a God of infinite goodness and he justly deserves my allegiance and faith, I risk doing the greatest injustice by not acknowledging him. Moving on to the argument from evil. There is an anti-theistic argument from evil that says there is real evil in the world. It isn't just a matter of personal opinion that the thing in question is abhorrent, and furthermore, it doesn't matter if those who perpetrate it think it is good and could not be conceived by anything we said. Thus, the evils in this world would constitute a case against the theistic hypothesis that there is an all-good, all-powerful, and all-knowing being who intervenes in our world. However, according to the argument, in a non-theistic universe, the opposite is true. Evil would just be a natural outgrowth of the natural processes. So, the reasoning is something like this. The naturalist says that evil is a problem for you. Why would a good God allow evil to exist? However, evil is still a problem for him. There really isn't any evil on a naturalistic perspective. To quote Alvin Plantinga, there is nothing much more to evil, say, that sheer horror of the Holocaust of Paul Pot or a thousand other villains, than there is to the way in which animals savage each other. Moving forward, the argument from simplicity. This is an epistemological argument for God's existence and runs something like this. According to the philosopher Richard Swinburne, God has created us in our theoretical preferences thus leading us to think simplicity has a better chance of being true than does less simplicity. In other words, we are more inclined to think that simple explanations and hypotheses are more likely to be true than long, complex explanations. Hence, if theism is not true, then there is no reason to believe that the simple is more true than the complex. Furthermore, in the last argument, argument number 15, saving the best for last, the argument from desire. We as human beings have desires. Nature cannot explain these desires because nature cannot satisfy them. 
The source of our desires require a metaphysical source above the physical to satisfy these desires. These desires can be um, a desire we have for God, a desire we have for life beyond this world, a desire for ultimate justice, meaning or ultimate or um, a desire for meaning or ultimate purpose in the world, desire for ultimate truth, for spiritual significance, and so forth. Now, in summary, there are, of course, many other arguments that can be offered that I haven't even addressed here. However, given the wide variety of arguments available, some modified and newer versions, if they are used carefully and wisely, they make a substantial case for the conclusion that a being such as God exists, at least in the cumulative approximate philosophical sense, if not in the revealed God of religion as Christianity preaches him to be. And so, yeah, those are the 15 arguments for God's existence, which reads, which now reaches me to the end of this episode. And I just want to say, of course, at the end of all my videos, um, lectures, and all that, all that kind of stuff, thank you so much, and God bless you. Please be sure to follow the page at WordPress, Hellenistic Christendom by Stephen Dunn, if you already haven't, and also in other places such as Facebook and Instagram and etc. Thank you so much. God keep you, and have a nice night or day. <laughs>